What's up, everyone? I'm Corey Siegfried, and this is The Turn. Welcome to a different side of golf. This is our eighth episode of season one, which will include nine episodes with one released every nine days. In these episodes, we'll approach what each individual does both on and off the golf course with a business perspective in mind. This episode's guest, Tom Fazio, is well known as one of the most renowned and prolific golf course architects to ever exist. Tom has designed over 200 courses, with most of them being in the United States. He has more courses on the Golf Digest Top 100 Courses list than any other architect in history, and several of those courses are ranked in the top 50. He's designed the course for the 2021 Olympics in Japan, is Pine Valley and Augusta National's go-to guy for additions and renovations, and my favorite fact is that the best modern-day golf architect poll was discontinued entirely after Tom claimed the award three years in a row. For my senior project in high school, I actually had the opportunity to go shadow Tom and his team at Shooting Star in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, while it was still rock and gravel being shaped with bulldozers, and they were using spray paint to really map out where every hole was going to go. It was an incredible experience. All right, so here are some of the courses he's made, and this includes courses Tom has renovated or redesigned, which he doesn't even get credit for on the top 100 list. Ready? Adair Manor, Augusta National, Bakers Bay, Bel Air, Black Diamond Ranch, Butler National, Carlton Woods, Kays Valley, Congressional, Congaree, Dallas National, Estancia, Firestone, Floridian, Frederica, Gozer Ranch, Hudson National, Inverness, Jupiter Hills, Karsten Creek, Madison Club, MacArthur, Marion, Oak Hill, Oakmont, PGA National, Pinehurst Numbers 4, 6, and 8, Pine Valley, Quail Hollow, Riviera, Sage Valley, The Preserve, Saucon Valley, Sea Island, Shadow Creek, Shooting Star, Victoria National, Wade Hampton, Whisper Rock, Wingfoot, and Wynn Las Vegas. So it goes without saying, Tom has played a large part in the evolution of golf and course architecture over the past 40 to 50 years. In our conversation, we cover a range of topics from how he got started down his professional path, what it's turned into, how he approaches custom crafting each course, and his thoughts on players hitting the ball further than ever today and what that means for the future of course design. We spoke before the US Open, so I didn't get a chance to ask him about Bryson DeChambeau's performance, but maybe I will another time. So you're going to hear about all this and more. Please enjoy. Hello, I'm Corey Siegfried. This is The Turn, and I'm here with a good friend of mine, Mr. Tom Fazio. Mr. Fazio, how are you? Very well, very well. Corey, nice to visit with you. Yeah, great to have you on. Um, so let's really get started. You just got back from a site in Texas that you were at, and you said it's the first, really the first site you've been able to travel to this year, right? Yeah, other than other than my uh, my home course in Jupiter Hills, uh, uh, occasionally visiting there, uh, but it's the first uh, project uh, kind of out of the way that uh, um, I've visited since. Uh, I guess uh, springtime. It's, it's hard to believe we've gone through that far, and it's the middle of September. Of but I think most people will be glad when 2020 is over with. So uh, hopefully we're moving on. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So let's just dive in. Uh, obviously, in my mind, the most storied architect in golf history. A lot of great things, and your your track record speaks for itself. But starting from the beginning. Born and raised in Norristown, right outside Philadelphia. I don't think most people know that you're a Philadelphia guy. Uh, no, because it's, you know, 50 years ago, I moved to Florida. I mean, it's hard to believe it's 50 years. 
but we, uh, when my uncle, uh, George, uh, the tournament player of the, I call it the Hogan, Steed, Demerit, Byron Nelson era, that's when he played on the tour. And he also, back then, most of the golf pros had club jobs, including Ben Hogan, including Byron Nelson, uh, where they had, uh, uh, I think Sam Snead supposedly had a club job, but I don't think he ever was that kind of a club pro uh, type person. He played golf every day. And that's why he was so good. And and I think he uh, made his living through, uh, uh, he, he made his on the first tee. He had to match one before he ever had to play it. But uh, I think that uh, uh, when, when, when my uncle was very much of an entrepreneur, golf designer, uh, golf player, uh, teacher, a good player. Uh, he uh, decided when we had to move our business from Philadelphia, if you go back in history, that was 50 years ago or more, the golf industry was growing and booming in the South and West. And that's where that's where you needed to be. So uh, Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, major golf construction, development of new golf courses, a major boom in golf and a very little new golf in the Northeast. In fact, extremely uh, low in terms of volume. So we moved the, the base from from uh, suburban Philadelphia to uh, to Florida. At that time, um, the choices my uncle had was uh, Bob Hope, who was one of his great friends, uh, and George happened to be a pro at uh, Hillcrest in Los Angeles, right in the heart of the movie industry. And so he had lots of friends there and they all wanted him to come to California and be involved there because they also like to play golf with him. They'd like to take lessons from him. And he had another great friend, uh, Del Webb, who was a major developer um, in Phoenix. And uh, Del Webb wanted George to move his base there. Uh, but we were fortunate enough to, to get involved with a great piece of property in Florida and we decided uh, Jupiter was the place to be, and nobody even heard of Jupiter. We had very big, a- big apprehension about calling it Jupiter Hills because we thought nobody would ever know where that is. And who do we, we didn't know that Jupiter would become a famous place with some of the most famous people in golf uh, living. So that's how kind of how it started. Yeah, it's really grown into the uh, that whole like five ten mile stretch there. It rivals everywhere else in the world. I always say that Jupiter. Uh, Monterey, Long Island, and Philly have probably the best, you know, surrounding areas of golf courses. You're a Philly guy, but there you have some arguments there with some people from Chicago and other places uh, that think they're their areas, which is great. There's great golf destinations, but that's the great thing about the game. It's it's uh, uh, it's it's a great game that uh, has a lot of great places, especially in America. I think we're blessed with somewhere in the neighborhood of. 16,000 golf courses in round numbers. Uh, and that's all different types from the, from the uh, pine valleys of the world and Augusta nationals to uh, a nine hole par three or a small little uh, executive type of uh, quality golf experience. Where did you grow up playing in Philadelphia? I mean, did you, pl- I, I know with, you know, your uncle well, George. Well, see, I didn't, I didn't quite grow up like you and your brother, Max, and a lot of kids grew up playing golf. I grew up working at golf. Yeah, I played golf, but I started at a very young age for my uncle and worked at a at a club, a nine hole. My first course that I worked on was a nine hole course over in Chestnut Hill, Flower Town area outside of suburban Philadelphia area. And uh, my uncle had a lease on that property. It was owned by the county 
uh, actually a municipality, a township, and he leased that land and he started renovating the golf course and improving it. And when I was going to high school, uh, basically ninth grade, just starting high school, that's where I went to work. And back then we didn't have the technology and you hand raked bunkers. Uh, there was no bunker machine to rake them. Uh, you didn't spray out for weeds. You pick the weeds by uh, hand weeding greens. And uh, they were my first jobs. And uh, throughout all of high school, I was uh, working there in another club where he uh, owned and had his brothers operated up in Langhorn, uh, Pennsylvania, which is up near Bucks County. And uh, my father, who was George's older brother, was the, uh, the club pro. He was the local club pro there running the pro shop operation. And his other brothers were maintaining the golf course, taking care of. So it was a family affair. So that's where I played golf. It was an old, old golf course right next to a railroad, uh, fescue fairways where you loved in the summertime because there was no irrigation, and uh, it would brown out, and the ball would roll, and you could hit it pretty far. Back then, we thought hitting the ball 240, 250 was a long drive, but, but you couldn't only do that in the summertime when the ground was, was – was, uh, and then we'd play in the winter. We'd actually paint golf balls and go out and pay, play in the snow. I mean, that was a thing we did. But most of the time, uh, even though I was was played, was work was the uh, creating because my uncle got involved in actual physically involved in design in uh, in um, 1960 while I was still in high school. So then I worked through that, and and the first project I worked on full time was uh, in Ambler, Pennsylvania, a club that became a, again George operated the. He leased the land, built the golf course, and operated it for, it was going to be one of his golf courses that he'd own and operate, but he sold it uh, before we even opened it to a group of people who formed an all-men's club, and that was called Squires Golf Club. So uh, yeah. that was 1962 and three, and then uh, on to Waynesboro in 1964 when I was 19 years old, and I was in charge of hiring the people, signing the checks, building the project. Uh, so, you know, I got a young, young, young start. Uh, so, and, and again, the, the day, the, they were seven day a week work days and you worked uh, all because we did back then we designed and built. We were a contractor because we were actually learning. We really didn't know what we were doing. And the industry was not as sophisticated as it is today. So you, you you figured it out. And since George was a great player and understood golf, we'd shape a green and look at it and reshape it again and, and build a bunker and adjust it and move it and see how it looked in the field. So a lot of that was the, that was, that's the real way of how it started. So it was a fun deal. But uh, in fact, I just finished uh, writing a little piece on uh, on a 50 year anniversary book for Jupiter Hills that, uh, that we're doing a major renovation in 50 years of my son, Logan is in charge of that. And he's, he's really the ramrod and he's been at it. Uh, we started in April and we finished it, uh, just recently and it's going to be open for play in November. And he'd say, how can you do that much work in that short of time? Well, besides the fact that it's uh, Florida and you have better weather, you also work seven days a week, daylight to dark. I mean, that's what we did. So one of my favorite, uh, my uncle's favorite expression when he'd leave me after he'd come on a project in the morning, I'd look around and say, do this, do that, do this, move this, do that. He'd be take off, go play golf. And his last words uh, as he 
put his foot on the gas pedal and took his foot off the brake when he's walking with the window down uh, was don't forget to work till dark tonight. So that was <laughs> the deal. And so that's what I trained Logan to do. And that's what Logan does. So he's doing the same thing I did. And so, but, but that goes back to the question you had about where I grew up playing golf. I grew up at those two courses playing, but I, you probably played more rounds of golf in one year than I did in, in four years. Uh, but I also was, would have many more hours booked, which all paid off. I used to feel sorry for myself when I was young, when my friends were out playing golf and hitting to the shore on the weekends and the holidays and, and visiting, uh, for me, it was not quite that way. It was, and it, it actually at times would feel sorry for myself, but by the time I got to be about 27 years old, 28, 29, uh, you know, I had already had a PhD in golf course design, construction, uh, uh, in, in relative to actual being, being in the field doing it when my friends were actually looking for jobs and trying to find a career to start. I, mine would already have started, and that would have put me, you know, in the early 70s. We had a major golf boom in 1971-2-3, and there was a crash that came in September of 74, but we had 325 golf courses a year being built in the continental United States, and that equaled the boom that we had in the 90s from this great golf boom in 1992 to 2007, which was major in terms of new golf courses. Uh, the same thing was happening in the early 70s. So, uh, that was when we were right in the midst of moving to Florida, being involved in Florida, California, and other other places for the growth of golf. So I was in golf. And actually, uh, going back again for my time when I started in the mid-60s, early 60s to mid-60s, to up to 2007, we actually doubled the the, the, the industry, doubled the number of golf courses that existed from somewhere around – 7,500 golf courses to 15,000 golf courses oh my so God. just in that 50 year period. So I happened to be in the right place. Plus I happened to be in the air from transitioning out of the, you know, after the growth from world war two transitioning to the economics, you know, if you looked at the going to the business side of golf, he looked at the Dow Jones, do a, do a little homework and check what the Dow Jones was. Industrial average was at, uh, in, in 1980, 1979, and you, you'd be shocked at the number. And you can see how the growth from the Ronald Reagan era to uh, the decade of the 80s and the boom that occurred in golf and then into the 90s and 2000s. Um, I happen to be at the right place at the right time at the right industry. So, I one of my favorite stories of how, you know, when this all started to happen starting in 1950, right, was. Um, and you tell this better than anybody, obviously, because it's your story. But uh, you know, it, you think the greatest shot of all time is Ben Hogan's one iron at Marion, which uh, you know, famous picture. Most people don't even know that was he. You just hit the one iron in the green and two putted for par, so it's not really that great. But still, best golf shot well, in your mind. And most people would think, and most people would think that's how he won the. the well, that got him into the playoff. Yeah, that wasn't the winning shot. Uh, you know, you could take that read between and think it's a winning shot. That just got him into the playoff. And so uh, with uh, my uncle and with Lord Mangrum for that happened on a, that was uh, a Saturday. And then they had the playoff on Sunday because it used to play 36 holes on Saturday, the last day. So, but I, I tongue in cheek say that's one of the great, I'm sure 
there's been a lot of great shots in golf, but for me personally, that was because had, and, and selfishly, uh, uh, you know, I, I look at it from the standpoint and it may be, maybe I've never talked to George about it and he passed away in the eighties. So, uh, obviously he would have liked to have won the open, but I, I say if he won the open, maybe he doesn't get golf course architecture. Maybe he doesn't do that. Who, who knows? It's speculation. It's a story. It sounds good. You know, it sounds something that you could sit around and make up like most fake news there is. That's a fake news story that I just created. <laughs> because it's uh, not news, obviously, it's just an opinion. But for me, uh, that uh, George got into golf, you know, what would I be doing today if my uncle wasn't didn't get into golf course architecture? You know, I yeah, would I be caddying? Would I be where would I be? Would I be an accountant? I doubt it. But uh, who knows what I would have done? But that doesn't matter. I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing, and I've been doing it for roughly uh, fifty. Um, if I do the math, uh, it's roughly 55 years, uh, so which is a long time. Now, I also feel as young as you look. I feel that young. You know, and I'm still doing golf courses, and my son Logan is uh, um, out there doing the same thing, uh, even though he's 33 years younger than me. I think I can, to some degree, I, I, I don't keep up from certain things, but uh, I'm still there. Oh, yeah, you're traveling around still doing projects. It's not like you've slowed down at all. Well, I, I, I go around telling people what to do. He does. He and the rest of my staff physically do the work. I, you know, I don't have to I don't have to do the some of the things that I did before. And I don't have to uh, go out there and paint the lines and put the flags in and tell the bulldozer operators what to do. I tell them what to do and they tell the bulldozer operators what to do. Let's say you're in the position that George was in of you're hitting the gas pedal like, oh, yeah, don't don't leave until it's dark. That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I'm curious about is because you talk about Logan and George is, you know, from a brand and business management standpoint of what the session planning is like, especially in this world, right, with golf architecture, because uh, it seems to you, right, the maybe to most people, it's a black box of how it all happens. They don't really understand the construction that happens or the traveling to sites. But um, what, I mean, what was it like for you, just in your opinion, to go from George to yourself and now yourself down to uh, Logan with Fazio Design? Well, what, what was that like? Well, first of all, I, I never thought in the, in the context of succession plans. I mean, this was, you know, from the, when I started, there was no way you could dream that an industry, that a little business, a cottage business like golf course design. First of all, back when I started, not many people ever heard or thought that somebody designed a golf course. They thought they just happened. They didn't even, nobody, people that were a member of clubs done by famous architects like Donald Ross and Tilly Nasta McKenzie didn't even know who they were and their names were never used. Robert Trent Jones Sr., who was, who was a master salesman and a master, uh, entrepreneur and um, a unique guy. Uh, he was a guy that came up with the word signature golf, signature golf holes. He used to have an ad in uh, golf, the magazine. It said, give your course a signature. And he'd write his name, Robert Trent Jones. That's where the signature came from. So he was a master at that. And he worked for the Rockefellers and he did courses for the Rockefellers at the resorts. They had a company rock resorts was a big uh, they built hotels like the Dorado Beach in uh, in uh, Puerto Rico and Mauna Kea and Hawaii. You know they were built 60 years ago or so. 
And uh, uh, Trent Jones was a master of that. So he created an, a worldwide name for himself and branded. He kind of promoted that and got that uh, industry going from that standpoint. Now, we were nobodies other than the fact my uncle had this reputation as a very accomplished elite golfer and having won the, like, won the first Crosby tournament at Pebble Beach when they moved from Del Rey to Pebble Beach. And he won the Canadian Open. So, he, you know, he was a guy that didn't win a lot of tournaments, but he won several, and they were very good. It had low scores at the Western and played in many U.S. Opens and Masters. And then, of course, his uh, the tournament he didn't win, the U.S. Open and lost to the playoff, uh, was a major thing for him. Uh, but when he got into golf design, construction it was something because he loved he loved operating golf courses he wanted to be in the golf industry and it and i it just kind of happened he never told me he had a master plan to design and build golf courses forever and ever just i think it just kind of evolved for what he needed to do something when he was in his 40s and what do you do in your next stage of life if you're not going to play in golf tournaments and not want to be a golf professional at a club so and plus at a growing industry so I never considered it that way. I, for me, I never thought about it. It would never envisioned it would grow into what it would grow into. And it was just a job. It was just something you did. Some people have some real passion for it. I certainly do in a way, but my passion was you have to work and you have to do something to support yourself and your family when that's going to happen. And that's what I did. So there was no super plan for that. Even for the time now, I have three sons. I have my son, Logan, who's the oldest son. I have lost it, middle son. And Gavin, my younger son, who's now, uh, Gavin is our youngest child of six. So it's girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. And the boys fit right there in the middle. Uh, I didn't pick Logan as the one to be so-called carry the, the the name forward. It just so happened that he did. And uh, the other boys were doing something else, uh, going to school, had other interests. Uh, we never thought this golf thing would grow to what it was. And it wasn't, it wasn't a big ego thing. It wasn't a planned kind of uh, program. It just kind of evolved and happened. You know, again, it certainly turned out well. I never would have dreamt from the from the sixties that I would be uh do what I did from the nineties and two thousand. Would never believe we'd build golf courses like Shadow Creeks and uh you know, some of the unique places around the world just because nobody ever thought that way in, in terms of you wouldn't even imagine you could do those kind of things. It they kind of just happened over time. You know, to go, you know, the the, the way you envision golf, well, you'd have a great piece of land. I could go look at it and see how do you fit golf into it and how do you uh, place golf holes into a, a beautiful, rolling, natural piece of land with tree cover and streams and creeks and all those kinds of things, which was that's how, that's how we started. You looked for a good piece of property, never thinking that you'd find a piece of property with nothing on it, flat, no trees, no creeks, no no environment and build a golf course when you opened it within a year and a half you would have people say it's as good as any place they've ever seen and that's just you couldn't dream that far down the road it took unique people and uh that's how kind of things happen i well then how did the brand of tom fazio and fazio design evolve over time like if it wasn't intentional and it was just hey we're going to work hard we're going to keep getting project after project i mean at some point there was probably you know, you realize, well, 
everyone's writing about me, everyone's talking about me and my designs. And it, I mean, it becomes a brand at some point, right? And how do you manage that? Well, part of it was, uh, part of it becomes an ego that, uh, that you want to do well. Part of it becomes a business, uh, you know, you kind of put yourself into it. Uh, I can remember thinking back, uh, you know, I need a job. I need, I've got employees. I got payroll. I've got overhead. I got to have a job. You know, I'm gonna, you know, the time I didn't have a family, I was working daylight to dark, you know, before I call it BS, my BS time before Sue. You know, I just worked and did, uh, uh, you know, worked. You know, that's what I did. And then Sue came along. But, and interesting enough, uh, I'm old enough and we've been married for 45 uh, years. I can say it easily that, uh, you know, I had nothing else to do. So I got married. It happened in 1975. We got married because we were in a depression in the golf industry. It started in the fall of 74. And I wasn't traveling. I wasn't going anywhere which I was on, had I been on the road when I met Sue and, and did what I was doing, she'd never sit around waiting for me to show up uh, occasionally because I was always moving. I was always going somewhere. Yeah, literally every day, three, four, five days a week out of town, going someplace because the business is out of town. It's in California. It's in Ohio. It's in Florida. It's in North Carolina. South, that's what the job was. And uh, certainly, she wouldn't have sit, around, sit around waiting for me. So I didn't wasn't I wasn't traveling. So I was in that spot in Florida, and that's when we met and got married. But having said that, now I have a family. I have a wife, and going to have a child in a year or so. And so now I have to keep my job going. You talk, think about your future. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Well, and the industry is growing. Well, I want that. I'd like to have that job and that job. And, this boy, wouldn't it be nice to do a course here and there? And then you have competitors, and you have and the best thing that ever happened to me was Jack Nicklaus. When Jack was winning golf tournaments and winning majors, and you know one of the, obviously the greatest of all times, you know he gets in the golf course design business, so which is great for me because he's a competitor, and we're basically charging the same price because he's learning the business and starting the business, and then the Japanese economy booms in the eighties. And the Japanese bring Jack to Japan. Of course, he didn't want to do that and go there without being compensated for the the aggravation as well, the travel and being away. And how do you do that? And, and the brand that he had in his name, he was building a brand. So everybody's building kind of a brand. I'm just following along the way. I'm picking up the scraps, you know, along the way and kind of working hard and building the name. By I knew my, you know, I can't, I can't be. <laughs> You know, Jack Nichols, greatest player ever, and he's winning turn. How am I going to compete with Jack? I mean, he could give me eight aside or whatever. And uh, but I, at my business, I felt I could compete with him. Well, fortunately, he goes into the business and high profile name has big value. Well, I could I just ride his coattails, and you know, I my fees increased as his fee, not as not as high as he had, but uh, fortunately, it all worked that way, and so. It's you know you can say I could say that I would be smart planning that I didn't plan it that way it just evolved and happened took advantage of the situation just kept working and then but most important following some of the guidance I had from my uncle and, and you know people of quality that uh, you uh, look up to you always produce the best you can do work hard do the best you can do and everything else kind of takes care of itself, you know, even though you have good breaks along the way and there's some bad breaks, you know, we have recessions. Well, again, the worst economic time of my life 
the worst, 1974-5. No business, no income. Things are disastrous. Best thing ever happened to me. I met this girl and got married. Had that not, had business not been awful and bad, there's a good chance, probably, and there was an excellent chance I wouldn't have married her. I probably never married her because she wouldn't have waited around for me. She's not a, a kind of person, and she wouldn't put up with it. She didn't play golf. She didn't understand. She had no clue what golf was. Didn't understand, never played golf, never been on a golf course, none of that. So that was a whole different deal. But there again, it shows you it's called a God thing. It just worked out. Being at the worst time turned out to be the best time. So the, from the whole branding thing, luck is on my side. The commitment, dedication, hard work, I, I think the old cliche, you make your own. It's amazing how the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. You know, the way things turn out, it just works that way. So for me, that's yeah. how it worked. It's Well, you're talking about, I mean, not recession, but how you're in the right place at the right time. One of my, and you met this guy, one of my roommates was Tyler Ray. Uh, we lived together for two years and he's pretty much the Donald Ross guy now uh, worldwide for anything that's a restoration or renovation or even just history. They call him and he, he works in golf architecture. But I remember when we lived together, he would be sketching everything in his room. And I'm like, you're ever going to design your own course? He goes, oh, no that's dead. Like there are never any going to be any golf courses. There's no money in it for me to do that. How have you seen, you know, the golf architecture transform from its heyday until like, what is the future of that now in your opinion? Well, the future is, is there will always be ups and downs. Uh, you know, will there be an economic time where we have, again, if you do the math and go just strictly from a business, you're trying to create a model. Could you foresee in the near future, that would, from for an example, being the error from 1992 to 2007. If you take roughly those 15 years, uh, there were an average of 300 golf courses a year built in the continental United States. That's 4,500 golf courses. You know, I can't even imagine that could happen again. For certainly, I'm sure by the time your child is of middle age you know, which is a long time from now, a couple of decades, maybe that could happen. I doubt it for a lot of different reasons, economically, environmentally, whatever. So I, I don't know that. Uh, and, you know, the other interesting thing, uh, uh, you know, our, our population growth, if you look at the population of America, we're roughly at 340 million people. You know, when I was born, it was about 150 million. 1945 and right after World War II. You know, we obviously, we have all kinds of political issues with immigration and environmental issues. You know, how much more is America going to grow in terms of population and how that reflects to the to the uh, uh, the need for recreation and other kinds of things? Are more people going to play golf? Yes. But, and where are the resources going to come? And, and, and then you get into a lot of social political things on the golf side relative to the cost of golf and the cost of development, the cost of creating things. Going back to your friend who's a Donald Ross aficionado of, of restoring golf courses, that's a major in thing that's keeping people in business today and keeping golf architects busy with something to do, especially in that from 2007 to 2015, even uh, there were very few new golf courses. And there's, there's, 
there's new golf courses to be done uh, and someone's going to, you know, there's going to be an opportunity. Now you have a lot more competition because you have a lot of young people that want to get into the business and love it and the passion about it. Uh, you know, uh, I wasn't passionate about it. I didn't love it to start with. I just been in the right place at the right time and evolved over time. So it's a whole different story. Now, you know, I've got, the experience and the name and the brand, you know, and I worked through all that and I don't even know how that happened as I explained some of it, but it happened. And, uh, uh, you know, that's now you can argue the point that, uh, maybe there are too many fans. I've had people say there's too many Fazio golf courses in the top hundred, you know, that's not fair. Maybe that some of those golf courses shouldn't, or the, I mean, I have 30 golf courses that you never heard of or played that are as good as anything that I've ever done. They're just not in the cycle or the or the uh, in the game to go and promote and to create that. But that was all part of my not just brand, my my uh, whole focus on golf and whatever I did was no matter what it was, even though it wasn't the high profile place, it has to be the best it could be. And then I also had a little bit of challenge and whether it's ego or what it was, if I'm going to go to. Whatever town, Orlando, Austin, Texas, uh, Palm Springs, California, you name it. Well, obviously, there are Pete Dye golf courses, Jack Nicholas golf course, or Robert Trench, whoever it may be. Uh, my goal is, I mean, I, I got to be number one. Why wouldn't I want to be that? Who doesn't want to be number one at any, whatever you do, whatever job it is. So that keeps you working. That keeps the game on. It also for me, builds the next project. You're only as good as what you've done lately. What have you done lately? That's what counts. Forget, I could live on the laurels. Shadow Creek's being one of the famous ones uh, is roughly uh, 30, uh, 32, 34 years old. That's a long time ago. You know, I've done, I've done 150 golf courses since then, of which there are lots of, you know, very unique, distinctive golf courses. And I'm doing many, several golf courses right now for Discovery Land, which is one of the premier residential club community builders in America on the high end. And uh, the, some of the new things we're doing for them in, in New York and Austin, Texas, we're getting ready to start a new project in Portugal, which I don't do international work, which is another story because I don't have to. And I wasn't a world guy. I'm not a world guy. Although we did the Olympics course in Tokyo that would have had the Olympics this year, that'll be next year. And that was because my son Logan wanted to do that. So Logan's thinking of the future and Logan's thinking of that brand and he's evolving into that. Now he also has to produce because people uh, expect, well, he must be, you know, he's doing it because he's my son, you know, and what are his, you know, how, how good is he? You know, he has to prove, well, he's already proven it in all the projects he's worked on that he's extremely capable. And, and I would say my uncle used to have a favorite, a, a great line that he must have got from somebody because it was really sound like an old time line. If the student doesn't become better than the teacher taught him, then the teacher wasn't very good at teaching that, whatever that may be. And it's, so the student should become better than the teacher because you have the experience that the teacher gives you plus your own. And plus the, and then obviously you have the dedication to go forward and work hard and move on where the teacher doesn't have to quite do it that way. So uh, Logan is at that stage in his career as well, that uh, extremely capable. I'd say that he could give George and me to a side and play our best ball. That's, in terms of golf course architecture, because he's had no experience. And we and learned through all the mistakes that we made along the way 
we've educated him to that so he doesn't have to make those mistakes or he doesn't have to try that or do this or do it that way. Well, kind of in that in that forward. vein, one of the things on your website that I read and I, I love just from the business management side of it uh, of Fazio Design, yeah, the website mentions, you know, Fazio attributes the, your success or the success to maintaining a team concept in design shared by a dedicated staff. So at what point or how did you approach really managing a group of individuals to help build out everything out and carry that uh, pedigree of talent? Well, first of all, it's important that I looked at it from a, it's a business. I looked at it just as well as a business. And I have, first of all, for me, family comes first. If your family's not happy, if you're not, if you're not happy with your family, you don't want to be, that's not your number one focus you're going to lose your family as the center of your life. So that's the most important to me. So, you know, I knew that I couldn't be at a place all the time. I had to have some staff people help me to get the job done. And the fact that we did hands-on custom crafted work, uh, I couldn't be there every day to make a decision. And, and the course of building a course in that time frame, there's lots of daily decisions. And especially because it's artistic and not scientific. It's not an exact science. We're not, we're not cooking and you can't write it down to cook a meal and, and create a recipe and cook it to exactly that same taste and by the same ingredients. Because I'm also creating and establishing my number one most adamant feature for golf design for me is creative, distinctive, unique, one of a kind, not done before individually custom crafted outstanding wow never seen this exactly this way no matter what it is i'm not copying one thing i've ever done before so there's no brand per se of of similar things uh i love uh going to towns like in palm springs california i have uh the vintage club the quarry the madison club bighorn el dorado you know five major distinctive unique fabulous places none of them look alike none of no two golf holes are the same no two golf courses the same they're all custom crafted so that's what i like doing now i evolved and that happened to me and i made it happen because i decided i was not going to be an international designer i decided this way back when when i had a family started a family because having a great wife and great kids and a great place living in great places I didn't want to have to leave. The hardest part about the job was leaving, going on a plane Monday morning and leaving and going someplace. Fortunately, I had the ability when I was able to in the mid 80s to, uh, uh, um, you know, have the resources to want to work and stay in the region. I became regionalized. So between my house that I live, my office in North Carolina, and my office in Jupiter, Florida, if you look at that distance, I have about 100 golf courses in between those places. From a brand standpoint, you know, the competition and or a developer could say to me, well, there's enough. We don't, we don't need another Tom Fazio golf course. Here. We're trying to market, promote our new deal as the best ever. And we want it not to be like any other. <clears throat> well, uh, that's one of the reasons why I focused on creative, distinctive, no branding. I didn't have a style, purposely didn't want a style because where's the golf 
industry growing, Hilton Head, Southwest Florida, Southeast Florida, Orlando, uh, Pinehurst area, um, the places where golf was growing in multiple numbers. And if you look at all those places, I have many golf courses in each one of those places. And that's, that was planned because I'd rather work there and get on a plane and have to leave and fly across the country or go across the world. And even though the world may have had an exciting, famous place somewhere in Spain or Scotland and or you name it, I didn't do that. In Japan, the Japanese tried to get me to come to Japan in the, in the 80s when the golf was booming in Japan, absolutely growing like crazy. And the Japanese economy was the number one economy in the world. I'd said, no, I wasn't going to do that. And even though the money was big, I'd rather not. I, that wasn't the highest importance for me. I, I couldn't get home. Most of the time I had young kids. I wanted to go to football games, soccer games, basketball, the sport of the season, the dance recitals of the of the month with the girls and whatever, whatever it was, didn't matter. I had one daughter to play golf and soccer, had to be there though. So it wasn't just watching some of the individual sports. So I couldn't do that if I was traveling international. So I didn't do it. Flat out, no, no matter how much money. And I had many opportunities for huge amounts. And I was young enough that I could have done it. Nobody would have found fault. But I would have given up a lot personally to get more financial rewards. I didn't do that. But I also work for myself. If I worked for you, you'd probably fire me because you would have sent me. And that would have been, and I had to go. And so a lot of people do that. So you can't. I don't blame people for doing it. And some people have to feed their family. Since I work for myself and it was my deal. I call the shots. I sign the checks. I decide what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do, and how I'm going to do it. That's the way I did it. I've certainly turned down projects, uh, and maybe, and I've been turned down, I guess, because I wasn't hired. If I go for an interview and the guy doesn't hire me, I get turned down. So I guess you call it that. But uh, generally, when I go for an interview, uh, the person that's interviewing me, I'm interviewing him at the same time, him or her or the project, just to evaluate. I, 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 you know, it's it's uh, responsibility. The baggage that I bring to a project is high expectations for myself personally. I have to, it has to because you, your dad, and your brother are going to show up and say, "Well, Tom, what happened to that? Why isn't that one as good as others? And what 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 was it? A low budget, or why'd you do it? Uh, you know what happened? You know what's the story? Nobody wants to hear the story. The only thing that counts is the end result." So I had to evaluate that. So it wasn't, I turned down a job. I'd look at it. Maybe this timing wasn't right. I'd look at it uh, from the standpoint of who is the owner? What's their, what is their, uh, you know, there's some that I, that I walked away from uh, purposely because most of the thing it had to do with personal uh, commitment, how you had to be there and what timing it was. You know, it's a very, a very uh, involved, complex process and especially uh for people who generally do it one time one time only they create a golf course to create a real development or whatever and that's generally all they do now our our company that we work for uh, and have for t- over 20 years mike melman and discovery land uh they call me and michael calls said time i have a site in in texas go look at it tell me what you think about it Tell me how good it can be and how much it's going to cost. End of story. I call them on the phone after review and I tell them the thing and we have a conversation and uh, he says, okay, let's get started. Let's go. You know, that's it. That, no more, no more discussion, no meetings, no other thing. Just go do it. 
and that's kind of spoiled for for most cases but it's kind of it doesn't always happen that way i was gonna say what is the typical process because i remember when i kind of shadowed uh the Fazio Design Group in Arizona for a month, it was, you know, we come up with several iterations of one property in the design, even just in the proposal process uh, before we begin anything. So how was a typical course or, I don't know, a project sourced for you? Well, usually uh, we get a call from someone that has a piece of land that has a dream to build great golf or a great hotel, great residential community or a combination of all those. So we go look at the site and then have to make an evaluation. Can, can we perform? Can we do what they want? Number one, number two, can we, you know, make it happen? Are we going to be happy with it? What are all the factors? What's, what's the timing of it? How, how, what's the evaluation? Who are the people involved? So there's a whole, cadre of thoughts that we have and a lot of it's a chance you just take a chance and you keep working at it you don't have an answer you don't have a set idea i'm working on a new project for a new project in uh, utah that's going to be a ski area destination ski area with a private golf club and a residential community and it it on paper and concept it it is going to be sensational i mean it'll be a new one-of-a-kind place you have to go to and we've been in this process of design for about a year and we're in the permit process now submitting plans <clears throat> and we haven't built anything yet you know will it turn out great yes it will somehow some way i can't tell you how because you know just it's supposed to and that's our job and it will because we're going to work at it and stay on it and work at it and work at it and it'll be ups and downs and trials and tribulations and uh, whatever it may be, but we're going to make it happen. Well, you need people. Back to the, back to the people thing I mentioned. Uh, my senior person that works for me uh, has been with me for 47 years. Now, that, uh, that, the only negative to that is it makes him sound old and makes me sound older. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's just the way it is because I've been around a long time. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and most of my people have been with me for 30 years or 35 years. Logan, who's, who's in charge now, uh, uh, day to day, uh, he's, uh, 42 and he's been doing it for 20 years. So he has multiple, you know, probably, probably has been involved with close to a hundred golf courses at 42 years of age from, uh, from renovation to rebuilds to, you know, er every phase of it. So, uh, you know, it takes, it takes people and, and, and staff, uh, one of the things I've train my people to do is also bring along uh, people that they can train as well. So, uh, but I also believe once you know your job, what you're doing in terms of building a business now on the businessman side, on the, on that side, once you know your job and know how to do it, you really should be training someone else to do it. And you do something else or you do more things, more than one thing, do multiple things and you can train people and make it happen. Now, the problem of building a big industry, a big business is, you know, you get to a stage, you have to be careful of that based on timing. Now, you know, I had an office in Arizona. I had to close in 2007 when the industry crashed, when when the real estate market crashed in 2007 and eight. You know, the, the golf industry came to a screeching halt. So I had 28 employees at that time. I had people that worked for me for 30 years, 25 years, 15 years, was probably the newest person. We had to close our Arizona office because, A, 
there wasn't any work in the East, but I lived in the East. So I didn't, you know, I'm not going to travel West because there's nothing to travel to go see for quite some time. So there was no need to have that office in Arizona, but it, it became uh, uh, somewhat for me that having the, the staff and the people to, uh, uh, to follow through because you, you know, you really have to hold people's hands along the way. And there's so much to, to get involved, to make a golf course happen. Uh, there's no fixed way, but every place is different. Everyone is unique and has its own custom. Again, if you're going to custom craft a product, there's no cookie cutter way to put it on paper. And that's the way it's going to happen. Sure. You've gotten this question all the time, but I've never heard the answer. What, is your favorite property that you've developed? Well, I get, I get asked that all the time. It's hard to say. I mean, I have, I, I set, I wake up in the morning early and I write things down and think about things of my, what I'm going to do that day and what all the projects I have in my brain. Because for me, uh, I still, uh, you know, I'm still involved because I want to be and i um, thinking about every project at the same time. So in my brain, I'm thinking about right now what we're doing in Austin, Texas, and what we're doing in Florida, and uh, what we're doing uh, at Kays Valley in a renovation, getting ready for the BMW and uh, tournament next year. And at Charlotte, Quail Hollow for the President's Cup in uh, 21 or 22 now, and a future PGA and, uh, in 25 or 6. And and the Ryder Cup, we're going to have it at at, uh, at um, Adair Manor in Ireland at 26. And, you know, I'm thinking about all those kind of things. Uh, uh, and it's, so it's, you know, that that just uh, evolves. So, uh, and again, this question, what's my favorite? Well, I, I thought, you know, if I could come up with my favorite courses I like, I'd probably, probably have to do it alphabetically. Because I've done so many, and I like so many I've done, or or maybe the decades that I did them in. So it's for me, I've been involved in the decade of the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, 2000. Now the teens. That's six decades that I've been involved in the golf industry, and obviously they all have stories. They all have lots of different golf courses along the way that I like, and lots of reasons. And then I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come up with my 18 favorites, not golf holes not golf courses, my 18 favorite clients that I worked for and the places I worked, because that to me is really where, where it's at. That's, that's the personal side. That's the real inside. Well, I write down names and I start doing it by decades. I start going because I can remember from the first golf course that Squires and Kimberton, uh, just outside of Phoenixville and Macellum Springs and all those golf courses I worked on for my uncle. And then every decade I started writing names down. Well, I got to 64 names of people, my favorites. So I'm thinking, well, gosh, I'm trying to get to 18, but I have 64. What do I take out? Oh, I can't take this guy out. I can't take that guy out. No, this, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Uh, so that's the same way with a golf course. I can't pick a favorite golf course. Now, where do I spend most of my time? Since I live in Jupiter in the wintertime, I'm at Jupiter Hills most of the time. But how can you not uh, like MacArthur? I mean, MacArthur is one of my favorites. And, and the experience with Nick Price and the, and the owners of the property is second to none. Emerald Dunes, uh, you know, my involvement there from day one is just one of my favorite places. Uh, they just have so many of them. And I live in Western North Carolina. I have a place where I live now in Western North Carolina in the summer 
uh, where Wade Hampton is, which ranked in the top 30 or whatever it is, top 40, where somewhere along the way there. And I have another course, Mountaintop, that's right in walking distance to it. Uh, and that's ranked number three in the state of North Carolina. And it's a fabulous discovery project. Well, I'm just finishing brand new golf course called High Hampton which is touching the property at Wade Hampton. And it's going to open up next May 22nd. Absolutely knock your socks off. One of a special, great, sensational golf course. I mean, just maybe as good as anything I've ever done. Brand new. It's not just finishing. I mean, when I show you this golf course, you'll be blown away. Just absolutely blown away. Well, then across the street from that, I did a little nine-hole par three with a practice facility and practice range called Headwaters. Maybe the best par three short club experience. 30 members, this place to go practice and hit golf balls and play as good as any place in the world. Now, this is a world deal. That's that, And all these are in walking distance. One of so I have my own Monterey Peninsula right here where I live in western North Carolina that I'm here every day that's as good as any place you'll ever see. I'd say like your favorite is the next one you're working on. Well, that, that's a standard answer. I remember Arnold Palmer saying that once about some courses he was doing. Yes, it's standard and saying your favorite is like, how do you pick? I have six children. How do you pick your child? Yeah, they're standard cliches and they're all legitimate ideas. But uh, for me, I've been blessed with having so many. And, and the fact that we do a niche type of design for people, very few custom not uh, you know four or five a year when the times are good or two or three or five or six depends you know and then you give it the time do the math times it by 55 for me you know as long as i've been doing it it adds up the numbers add up plus now the renovations which has been a big market in terms of renovating the courses and then you know, there's lots of restorations as we hear, and as, you, as you, your roommate, your friend, who does Donald Ross courses. So, you know, I don't do much of that. I worked on a lot of Donald Ross golf courses. Not that I want to change them. Uh, and we're doing a we're doing a Seth Raynard renovation right now in Fox Chapel in uh, Pittsburgh area. That's yeah. fabulous and a lot of fun and great because that's what they want and that's what they should have because that's what they want. Uh, I look at this. Look at. Uh, um, you know, when you, when you look at some of the great, great golf courses, uh, uh, you know, and, and they've evolved over time. Now, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with Pine Valley and Augusta National for decades, over almost four decades now. And obviously, I don't talk about them in detail uh, because I don't have to. Uh, they're personal, uh, private deals for me that I love and they're great. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I, I read a lot about the restoration work and being like to restore, you know, the Donald Ross look, I'm not against that at all. I think that's fine. Uh, I think the question I'd always ask or ask somebody, what do you, Donald Ross passed in 19, I believe it was the spring of 48, 1948, just after I was born. What do you think he would do to any one of his golf courses? If he saw a person like Dustin Johnson hit a golf ball and sell so, so all the golf clubs that Dustin Johnson uses for those big heads on those drivers and couldn't even envision the old timers couldn't envision how golf is played today. So do you think they would have done exactly what the way it is there that, that they have? Obviously not. Nobody would. It's just, you know, it's unique. Would, uh, would Frank Lloyd Wright design the houses he designed uh, back when he did them, if, if he had the technology and the equipment and the engineering things that we have today? 
probably not. So again, there's nothing wrong with doing it that way. And that's what makes golf as a game and as a, and as a business and even the architecture side of it so much fun because there's no exact answer. There's no exact right or wrong. There is no absolute. That's what makes it fun. It's great cocktail talk, obviously. It's great to sit around. Everybody has different opinion. And then people have opinion based on, say, I'm really not interested in your opinion and how you play a golf course and what you think about it. It's fine. I'm, I'm interested for you. I'm not interested for me because my brain is thinking about, even though you're a very good player and accomplished and done one wonderful events, I'm looking at the way you play, but I'm also looking at the way your grandfather plays. And he's close to 90 years of age and a great guy and a, and a wonderful player now. And that was, was a good player, but also your mother's just starting to play golf. Very important part of the game. Who's how people are playing, how is she going to like the game? Fortunately for me, my wife started playing 10 years ago. That person that didn't like golf, she uh, uh, just wouldn't have anything to do with it. Now she's a nut and plays seven days a week. Now she comes home with her ideas. She has a, she has a thing that she calls, uh, she labels things by letters. And one of the letters she uses, she marks one of the scorecards, she plays the hole, and she'll come home to me and say, Tom, that hole has a DF. The DF, I, when I first didn't know that was, I had to ask, what's a DF? Well, it's a design flaw. So I don't <laughs> think that bunker's in the right place. Or that tree is not shouldn't have been there. Or why is that creek there? Or whatever. So here's a new golfer having her opinions that I have to, I have to listen hole by hole of her round the golf. Uh, so that's the fun part about that. But, you know, it's interesting. Everybody has a story. But for me, I've got to look at the total picture. For I'm looking at, when I'm looking at it, like if I go look at a golf course, if you wanted me to go look at something to value it, I wouldn't go play it because I'm not good enough to play. I mean, I'm not going to play. I have to think how Dustin Johnson's playing that golf course. Plus, I have to think about how a four handicap or five handicaps or two or scratch or, and then a, a 10 or a 12. All at the same time, visually, it flashes in my brain when I'm standing up my tee and I'm looking from side to side. I'm really not interested in the, in you know, what I shot or honestly, I'm not interested in what you shot either because, you know, it's there. I respect you as a player that your opinion would be what it is for you. But for me, I have to look at it in total because of, um, that's what I've always done. What I'm curious of is your thoughts on what everyone's saying today about things like Dustin Johnson. And I mean, there's all these different opinions of, oh, you should roll the ball back or, uh, you know, do certain stuff to the equipment. Some people say it's architecture. Uh, what are your thoughts in general? Well, yeah, I have lots, I have lots of thoughts. You know, I, I, I think we, you know, and lots of events. So it makes the game so interesting. Could you imagine? And it's been this way for history of golf. You'll never see a crowd of people stand on a practice tee and watch a short, short hitter hit a golf ball. Yeah, hit a driver. Nobody's watching that short hitter. The guy, I don't even know who his name is. If he's bombing and hitting it far, you're watching him. Everybody does. It's I've been doing that for decades. That's ha- happened forever. So there is something about hitting the golf ball far and hitting it long, hitting it straight. Uh, now, technology has allowed for the golf ball to go farther and go straighter. That's that's an interesting thing. It's, you would think in one sense you could make a golf course more narrow. The problem is that uh, the majority of the people don't hit it that way. You know, they hit it all kinds of ways. So it's not just about the professional. I think, you know, there's only however many 40, 50 
golf tournaments a year that maybe those particular players, let's say just the U.S. now, but that could be for other countries as well, that uh, that maybe uh, it does go too long compared to the way it did. But what happens? Scores get lower, supposedly. And in most cases, scores are lower. And so that's not a problem. I think that the USGA has always had the answer relative to setting up golf courses for them, they have a one-time event, meaning, well, they have lots of events. You played at many of them, uh, but their premier event is the, the Men's Open uh, at the highest peak. And, uh, you know, the fact that it becomes more narrow, driving areas, uh, more penalties from off, off the line of play, firm, fast greens that generally were the way golf, uh, at least firmness, played over the past. It's very different than uh, than the way it is every week on the tour, week after week. There's a different, you know, kind of uh, way it's done. So I think I would raise a question: Would we have as much interest in golf if didn't have the Tiger Woods of the world and the Dustin Johnsons hitting that long golf ball? Look, look what Tiger when he came on the scene, he was the longest. And and then who would have thought the golf ball would go even farther from the 1990s to now? You know, look, you look on the stats, it's going substantially farther. So there's all kinds of issues and opinions. Again, go back to whatever. I don't think it's hurt the game or ruined the game. I think as we see golf with its with its growth and uh, interest, uh, the question is how far does it go, though? That's the question. So there's probably going to be some stopping point somewhere through technology, we would assume. I'll, I'll tell you, for the... 90 98% of people they don't think the golf ball goes too far. I certainly <laughs> yeah, don't think I'm, to go the, I'm always first thing I first thing I do I walk in the pro shop and I say bro what's your newest hot golf ball that's what I want tell me what it is and that's what I want. I'll buy it right now. Well I think that uh, there's always been great interest in golf design uh, although when I started in the industry you'd have to go maybe once every issue in a year or once every two years, there was an article on golf course design. There were many people that played most of the clubs, didn't know who designed the golf course, didn't know it was a famous person, became famous like a lot of artists became famous after they died. They weren't, uh, they kind of struggled along the way to survive. Uh, and then they became famous because history made it that way. Uh, but uh, I think golf architecture is very much a passionate thing for a majority of golfers, not all golfers. A lot of them don't understand it as much, but uh, it is fun. It's exciting. There's a lot to talk about. And because it's artistic, not scientific, and the fact that uh, there's no absolute answer makes it more controversial and fun and opinionated. And then if you have a strong opinion, you're loud. You generally get your way or you get your voice heard. As a man who never forgets to work until dark and one who takes every golfer into consideration, Tom Fazio is still one of the best course architects out there as his son Logan is helping carry on the legacy. Mr. Fazio, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me and share your opinions on some of the hottest topics surrounding the game today. And anytime I don't like my score in a hole, uh, instead of saying FU or WTF, I'm using the acronym DF. Make sure in two weeks, you check out the PJ Tour CJ Cup event. It begins on October 15th, and it's at one of Tom's crown jewels, Shadow Creek, an incredible oasis in the heart of the Las Vegas desert. On our next and final episode of the season, we hear from a special guest, the pro's pro, the director of golf at Kays Valley Golf Club in Maryland, an assistant Ryder Cup captain, and a former quarterback for Duke University's football team, 
Dennis Satisher. We hear about Dennis's come up through golf, how he's helped cultivate Caves Valley into a household name in the golf world, and the legacy he's created as he heads into his final year on the job. We'll see you on October 12th. Take care.